When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fearscape Media Network, exploring the unknown, one podcast at a time. Hi friends, this is Kelly with Wishful Drinking and Binge Thinking, the podcast where I get just absolutely hammered and I dole out psychological advice. That's right, I am going to be more drunk than that girl you met in the bar bathroom after your karaoke set who said, You have such good stage presence. Oh my god. That's right, zero preparation, multiple drinks, countless profound gems. Tune in the last Monday of every month on Fearscape Media Network. This episode of The Convergence Enigma contains many visuals used by Michael Schratt, our guest. If you would like to see those visuals, please watch the episode on our YouTube channel, Fearscape Media, at youtube.com slash Media, or click the link in the description below. Ladies and gentlemen, to another fantastic episode of The Convergence Enigma with Josh and Stefan. I'm your host, Stefan Gearhart, joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Josh Rutledge. How are you tonight, sir? I am doing fantastic. Uh, honestly, been looking to this uh, interview for a while, especially after seeing him speak at the most recent MUFON Symposium this past weekend. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks, thanks for being on, Mr. Michael Schratt. No problem. That's right, man. We are excited. Uh, Aviation historian, you've been investigating UFO encounters for over 25 years. Um, We're so pumped. Like I said, we got to see your talk uh, this past weekend. Uh, Quite memorable. One of uh, Josh and I, probably one of the biggest ones we talked about the entire plane ride home. Um, Just the evidence that you had and everything was just kept us awake. (laughs) That's, That's for sure, sir. Cool. Yeah, it's, it's always fun to uh, be a part of the team, so it's great. Yeah, uh, well, and one of the things that I heard uh, during the kind of um, a bio introduction that was given uh, for you at the MUFON Symposium is that over the course of like, about a year to 18 months, you reviewed something like 50,000 UFO cases, which you must have lived at the library. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they opened the doors for me, and what's interesting is uh, there was nobody else utilizing that uh, Essence. Really? I, I wow. Can't believe it. You know, you have all these incredible cases and no one shows up, you know? Yeah. Is it, is it, so it, I was often wondering about if any of that kind of stuff is digitized and available for public. Uh, I guess you don't have to go to Chicago to consume it, is what I'm asking. Right. Yeah. No, it's under the jurisdiction of David Merler and Albuquerque now. Okay. So, yeah. But at one time it was 2457 West Peterson Avenue in Chicago and over. It was definitely over two years, but uh, 
that's how long it took to go through all the file cabinets and all the manila folders and just pulling out the best of the cases that had a drawing, mm-hmm. a page report, and a flight path. And if it had that criteria, I went ahead and copied awesome. it. Awesome. Yep. Well, I mean, one of the things that I, um, I've i noticed uh, with your presentation, as well as just my own review of, of cases uh, from the past you know, 50 or 60 years, is that it seems like um, the evidence was stronger in the pre-80s cases. Yeah. I think I agree with that. Yeah, I do. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, people obviously have talked about encountering craft and having them land in their backyard and things like that, but there's just not the collection of soil samples and pictures of the ground where it landed Mm -hmm. and the circles and the burn circle. Just that kind of stuff doesn't exist post the 80s. And I'm I'm wondering if that's just a drop in, in field investigator practices or it's maybe a desensitization, desensitization of the subject. It seems like uh, during the Kennedy administration, we were kind of on this crusade to get this released. I mean, it was almost more palatable back then than it is now. And I think we've kind of lost our way. But it looks and sounds like it's it's gaining more speed. But the, the point I was trying to make at the conference is we really need the physical evidence to bring mm-hmm. this field forward. That's what it's lacking right now. Yeah, I wonder if it if it got fictionalized because of the 90s, because you think in the 90s you had alien autopsy, alien factor fiction. You had X-Files. You had all these things coming out that fictionalized it. So it kind of made the cuckoo level a little extra higher because people definitely started to say hey this is all fiction you know and so maybe there was a lack of just people even wanting to come forward or people wanting to work on these cases because they felt there was much more of a pressure in the 90s and forward it's my opinion yeah i think i agree with that too well you know there's no shortage of guys taking bigfoot casts in the woods (laughs) um all, all the way through that entire period of time so it's just it's interesting how the kind of stigma associated with UFOs is somehow different from the rest of the paranormal. Yeah. It's, it's, so. it's always kind of been that way for, <laughs> for a while. Like I think a while now you can go ghost hunting like it isn't anybody's business. Uh, you know, cause everybody thinks, you know, for the most part that a lost loved one has come back, but not a yeah. lost gray. <laughs> and maybe that's because it's closest to the truth. Maybe. I don't know. So, um, but Michael, I think your your presentation uh, at the symposium is really talking about those. The, we, I think it was called the Dark Files. I believe is what the presentation is sure. called. Sure. Um, and I, I really, uh, I don't remember the name of the of the individual that did a lot of the CGI recreation of the drawings that were found in those files. But <laughs> wow, top yeah, they were incredible. Uh, yeah, I mean. I really appreciate uh, the time and effort that went into it. And I'm incredibly jealous because all of that stuff lives up here. I just can't figure out how to get it into the computer. Uh-huh. So for somebody to, to take all that and, and, and actually make it into reality, is just amazing to me. Yeah, so. I can't take credit for it. I'm just the person who had the inspiration to follow through, you know, so Tom Bogan and Joe Ray, they, they get the credit for it. So I want to mention yeah. them up front. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was absolutely phenomenal to be able to, you know, something that 3D does that 2D animation doesn't do is it, is it allows sure. you to live in that space, sure. e- even if it's cartoony mm. looking like you still get to live in that space a little bit more. Um, mm. And just to see, you know, a tarp draped over a UFO and, and things like yeah. that it just really allows you to feel the scope of the size mm. of something and, and what it might feel like. It was it was breathtaking. And what And what we try to do through Google Maps is we know where these things took place. And so we can take you plus or minus 10 feet where it actually happened. So that's the advantage that we have now. So, you know, you you were talking about, um, I think at one point in time, you talked about USOs. Is that the word? Yeah. I was going to bring that up too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that's a, that's a big topic for me. I've been slowly working my way through Ivan T. Sanderson's book. Uh, oh, there you go. Visible Residence. There you go. Um, and, uh, but yeah, just, it's a, it's a huge topic for me. And so, and I'm actually one of the, uh, I'm, I subscribe to the camp of, I believe that they're probably hiding, you know, in our oceans or whatever, simply because exactly. I just haven't explored them as much. Exactly. Um, but I, I went back at one point in time and did some review and noticed that majority of the Project Blue Book case files uh, all the cases that took place under the Project Blue Book header uh, were near water. 
Um, <laughs> and Stefan and I even had a, um, a, a close encounter a couple of years ago where we encountered a craft moving across the sky towards a major river. Uh, and then it, it circled back around some minutes later uh, away from the river and, and came back to us almost like it was going to fill up <laughs> and then and then come back. And so even the Roswell crash, I mean, it, it was uh, almost heading in the direction towards uh, a reservoir. And so makes you wonder if, you know, it crashed because it ran out of water or something. It just look at Pascagoula or Allegash yeah. or any of those right. you know, that were on so, water. You know, just, you know, if anybody's done any of that kind of additional research to look at what are the geological or uh, geographical uh, similarities or things between cases. I didn't know if you've done any of that kind of stuff or not. No, not really. But I, it does appear to be the case where a lot of these, some of the Hudson Valley ones are definitely connected yeah. to lakes and rivers. and Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we, we um, <clears throat> when we first got started uh, doing our podcast, one of the things that we were really into is um, the Hopkinsville uh, crash or, or the Hopkinsville uh, encounter in Kentucky. I don't know if you're familiar with that case or not. The, goblins, the, the, Hopkinsville, the, the goblins. Hopkinsville goblins that kind of attacked and terrorized the farm family where they shot rifles out uh, and yes. everything. Yeah. Yep. Um, so the day that that occurred, uh, there was also a sighting in Evansville, Indiana, which is about uh, 100 miles due north of as the crow flies from Hopkinsville, right on the where Ohio someone was River. right on the Ohio River, where someone was attacked from uh, under the water by a creature that that clawed her leg, and she had mud in her leg that's only available or seen in under underwater underground uh, river systems. And, caves, and so, yeah. you know, so much of Kentucky is, is is a big cave system. Really makes you wonder. If, you know, maybe sometimes they're traveling through large underwater cavern systems, and that's how they're getting around underneath the United States and other land masses where the oceans are not readily accessible. Yeah, you're talking like like an underwater connected system. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then so. if you've got, you know, here we go, you know, not just a, a, an individual swimming through or whatever, but some of them are said to be enormous. And then, then you start sliding towards hollow earth. Right. <laughs> but yeah, if there's these <laughs> underground river systems, could USOs, especially smaller ones be connected and run through these things and, and yeah. continue run from sea to sea, run from uh, the Pacific to the yeah. Atlantic, you know, hop through lakes and, uh, you know, reservoirs and so on and so forth. So yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so I, I think that because uh, you had asked uh, early on and when we first got started, if, if you'd be able to share your screen, did you have yeah. some things in particular that you yeah, wanted to show us? That. Let's see if this works here. So I can just go share a screen, right? Here, I think. Yeah, I want to start right here. So the next case in this series here is Aztec, New Mexico, March 25th, 1948. This is a very highly contested case. Uh, there's a lot of people for it. There's a lot of people against it. Uh, some people won't touch this with a 10-foot pole, but I think it's important to cover it. Uh, Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, they did a tremendous amount of legwork on this. So I want to reference their book as the source material for this case. And Even Stanton Friedman stated that both Scott and Suzanne Ramsey put more blood, sweat, research, tears, and money into this case than anyone had ever done in Roswell coming from Stanton Friedman. Yeah. That's pretty huge. So uh, in a nutshell, everything is there. That's the reference for it. That's the source material. And let's, let's kind of like pin down where this actually took place. So you've got about 12 nautical miles Northeast of Aztec, New Mexico on Hart Canyon road. And if we flip forward here, you can see the uh, 2d drawing. This thing was 99 feet in diameter. And it had uh, six basically circular porthole windows wrapped around the outer circumference of the upper dome. There was a lower dome on the bottom. And just to give you a 2D drawing of this thing. And when this thing came in, it was the oil field workers that got to it before the military got there. So one of these cases, again, where... The military arrived on the scene later. So you've got these oil field workers that climbed up on the rim of this disc and they walked to the central portion where the dome is and they're looking in these windows. And you can imagine this. So what they actually found, we'll move forward here. This is a uh, 
scale model that uh, Scott had made for, uh, I, I think it was a band member that, that made this for him. And so this is kind of a, their scale model and that was given to him. They found one of these porthole windows had a, about a quarter size hole in it. They went back to one of their trucks and they pulled out a long stick. They put that through the hole and somehow, not sure how, they activated a, a device that opened up a hatchway door on the bottom lower dome that was a little bit smaller than the top one. And when they when they found out what was inside, they went up to the upper deck and they found two three and a half to four foot tall being slumped over on a control panel. So there were buttons and switches and dials and levers on the inside wall of the upper dome. There was this purple violet iconology projected on the inside walls of the upper dome. Uh, and then when they went into the main rim of the craft, they found 14 more bodies for a grand total of 16 bodies wow. associated with the Aztec incident. Wow. And we'll move forward here. And now you can see the retrieval operation is under full power now. The military is on site. And if you look, you can kind of see the reflection of a helicopter. Th this is something that Scott had talked about is that there was a U.S. Army helicopter that did one orbit around the scene and then flew out of the area. And the oil field workers, Scott told me this, basically he said that the oil field workers didn't know what was stranger. Was it the helicopter or the disc? Because they had not seen a helicopter before. This is back in 1948. Oh, wow, well, yeah. It was yeah. Still a novelty back then. <clears throat> you know, so that was their impression. So at this time, they're, they're retrieving the bodies. And then, how do you move a 99-foot diameter dish-shaped craft? They found out that the whole thing is fastened together by a pins device. And when you deactivate it, it breaks into three equal pie segments like a pizza. And so that's how they began the retrieval operation. They strung cables across the desert, wrapped them around the pie segments, and started dragging these across the desert. And they loaded these up on M25 tank transporters, which is called a dragon wagon, and they went right to Los Alamos. And so in a nutshell, that's Aztec. Wow. So what, what, what amazes me more than anything uh, in this entire story is that um, somehow of all the buttons that are on the dash, they found the one that opens the hatch. Well, that appears to be the case. They jiggled around something and they were yeah. able to, that, that's part of what the account is. But yeah. Uh, yeah. And then the military took it a step further. They figured out how to detach the segments of it. Right. So, yep. That's which, how they did it. which I mean, it implies um, it, to me, it implies some level of, of, of already uh, of, of knowledge already acquired um, right. to, to be able to, you know, break this apart because it feels like if you had never seen any like anything like this before ever, even our top scientists would take mm -hmm. potentially, you know, weeks, months, or years to figure out how to do anything with it. So. Oh, I agree. I agree. Uh, if it's, if the crash retrievals are true, then we had 41 with Cape Girardeau. We had 47, which is Roswell. There's another case in 46. Plus you've got the one they retrieved in 42 which is the Battle of Los Angeles. So by the time this happened in 48, they already had four retrievals under their belt. Wow. So this yeah, and if the they 50. were similar, they may have already known how to do it. Yeah, that's possible. It's possible. Yeah. You know, that's really know. the $64 million question is, are these crash retrievals real? And have they integrated the technology? That's really at the, at the heart of it. It really is. Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, obviously when they were, were retrieved in, 40, in, in the 40s, um, they were probably, like I said, taken to Los Alamos or maybe eventually moved uh, to, you know, a facility like Area 51 or something else. Right, Patterson. Um, or Wright Patterson. I've also heard there's another facility that's in um, maybe Nevada or Utah that is a, a bio a biochemical weapon facility mm -hmm. that also has similar, you know, kind of uh, safety protocols in place. And what better place to hide things than someplace that's dealing with biochemical weapons. Um, so, uh, I mean, it makes you wonder where these things might be today. Right. Yep. And there's a facility at Langley Air Force Base, Virginia as well. Okay. So there's multiple repositories where they keep these debris, craft bodies, UFOs, 
the motion picture film reels, the gun camera footage. There's a facility at McDill Air Force Base. There's one at um, Homestead Air Force Base. There's one at Avon Park. Uh, Edwards is alleged to have a facility. So, yep, they definitely spread it all around. Um, given how compartmentalized the military is, um, there has to be only a handful of people that actually know what this stuff is that's kind of collecting dust in, in a storage container. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We can't even get the Gordon Cooper film from 1957. We can't even get that. We know it's there. We, it does exist. Uh, Gordon Cooper saw it with his own eyes. Uh, it was put in a bag and a courier came and took it away. And we have no idea. It's probably in a vault at the Pentagon somewhere. Mm. So <laughs> with uh, all they, the they other, claim they don't have the evidence. Yeah. With all the other evidence, like you were talking about with the uh, the three aliens in the formaldehyde and, and, and things like yeah. that, much like Indiana Jones, the amazing stuff That's that right. I'm sure That's is right. hidden somewhere there in the Vatican vaults, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's it. So we can uh, move on to Kingman now. And I want to give credit to Harry Drew. He is the premier researcher on the Kingman UFO force landing. And so the difference here is, this technically isn't a crash retrieval. This was a forced landing. There wasn't any damage to the craft. This wing was about 30 feet in diameter, 14 feet tall. It had a series of ridges wrapped around the outer rim of the craft. And uh, kind of like a fat hamburger configuration, yeah. but not quite like the 1963 case. So this is the map on uh, where the team members took off from. So you've got Nevada test site. They, they left from Indian Springs. There was approximately 25 engineers. They were joined with another 15 when they got to Phoenix. And then they all boarded a General Motors uh, bus with blacked out windows. And they took about, it's approximately five hour ride on dirt roads to get to Kingman. And so that's the site picture of what we're looking at here. And when they got here very late at night, this is the scene okay here's arizona republic november 18th 2016 they asked the question is the kingman ufo crash a reality so it has made some of the newspaper clippings but not back then when it actually happened this is the scene when they got there there were two light alls that were lighting the scene at each corner of the area they had a tent and then if you look closely, you can see that General Motors bus in the background. So it was kind of tilted up at about a 15-degree angle. There were three beings standing right outside the craft. And then there was another being who was about 20 feet in four, ahead of those three. And he was the quote-unquote leader of the others. That was kind of how this all went down. Now, there were some residual propulsion still going on within the craft. And they had to have one of these beings go inside to shut this thing off uh, because they were getting sick going inside there. So that's something that I think is interesting to report. Now, once they got everything situated, this thing was loaded on that same M25 dragon wagon tank transporter. And by this time, they were really rushed to get this thing in a secure facility. So they had to transport this thing across the Colorado River. And the only way to do that, basically, was they had to cross the Hoover Dam. But they found out that the outer diameter of the disk was wider than the highway going across the Hoover Dam because they had light fixtures. So they had to move the entire tank transporter with the craft on, on the uh, transporter flatbed trailer to what is known as a put-in about 150 feet to 200 feet north of the north wall of the Hoover Dam. And they... They floated a barge down the river. They rolled the tank transporter with the craft on top of the flatbed trailer onto the barge. Then they strung cables from one end to the other end of the river. And this is at night. This is a chaotic scene. There's like yelling and screaming and swearing. They, they've got to get this thing secure before the sun comes up. So once they strung the cables across, they started floating this thing across the river and Harry Drew told me that the cable snapped and this whole thing started floating down the river and it actually made contact with the Hoover Dam. Oh and my God. With, with, the, with the desert conditions now in Lake Mead, um, you should be able to see a mark on there. I don't know exactly where it hit, yeah. but 
technically there should be a mark, which would be an interesting piece of evidence that this actually occurred. So that they ended up stringing another pair of uh, cables across. They, they did make it to the other side. And as Harry Drew had mentioned, I'm going to do a little bit of a blow up here so you can see this thing closer. Well, let's go in another two times. And now you can see uh, clearly what this may have looked like when they were bringing it across. Uh, he said at this point, they made it to the remote test site in Nevada. And uh, that's the backstory on how this all came about with the Kingman uh, forced landing. So, so can you take just a minute and, and yeah. kind of explain the difference between a crash and a forced landing? Okay. A crash, it, it could be on purpose or it could be something that they initiated on their own, or it could be a lightning strike that exceeded the tensile strength of the material itself. A forced landing is what happened in this case is this thing came through one of their radar ranges and they jacked up the power way high. I mean, really high. There's reports from Harry Drew where birds were flying through this corridor and when they got into this radar range, they fell flat on the ground. They were killed immediately. So wow. somehow when this thing came through that corridor, it interrupted their propulsion system, navigation system, and they came down, but it was a soft landing. It was not damaged. Wow. Wow. Yep. So that's how that's how that one came down. Now, here is the reference for it. Harry Drew. Uh, this is Seven Days in May, the Kingman UFO story, and he did a fantastic job piecing this together. It's very well illustrated. He's got all the pictures. He's got the references. He is a, he is a historian by nature. He's kind of a, a reference librarian type. And something that libraries generally don't do, unless you're very serious, he actually contacted one of these research libraries and requested the microfilm and they actually gave it to Harry Drew. He was able to confirm the story with the original microfilm. And that picture is in, in this book. So I want to give wow. credit to Harry Drew. Mm -hmm. I yeah. add that to my pickup list. So. Yep, same. I just wrote it down. <laughs> Harry Drew, seven days in May, the Kingman UFO story. He has it all broken down. It's just well done. Well done. All right. So let's continue. You on here now. Oh, this I know this story. Yes, incredible story. Now it, it's uh, it's legendary. It, mm -hmm. it hasn't been conclusively been proven. Clark McClellan has some good details on this. This is the alleged encounter with President Richard Nixon and our good friend uh, comedian Jackie Gleason at Homestead Air Force Base, February 19th, 1973. So again, legendary status within ufology. And we're still trying to get 100% confirmation even today for this case. So let's kind of walk through this here. Jackie Gleason and President Nixon at the charity golf outing in Florida, February 19th, 1973. This first part of the story is true, 100%. They really did have this golf outing um, I've got the newspaper clippings I'll, I'll show you here, but uh, absolutely it did happen. Now, uh, Richard Nixon knew that Jackie Gleason was a huge UFO buff. They knew this. I mean, this is something well known. Somewhere around the ninth hole, this story came up. They, you know, a, as UFOs often do within conversation, somehow they started talking about it. So Jackie Gleason, he turns to the president and says, Mr. President, uh, you know, I've had this lifelong interest in the paranormal and UFOs, and you're the president. Can you enlighten me? Can you tell me a little something about this? And he said, Jackie, uh, if you'll be available later today, I, I might be able to help you with that. So they finished their golf outing. Jackie didn't think too much about it. Uh, and then uh, later this evening, <laughs> there is a knock on the door, and it's the president, and uh the president says, well, Mr. Gleason, I remember that conversation we had around the ninth hole. And Jackie said, yes. And he says, well, why don't you come follow me? So they go into the president's car. He was driving along without the Secret Service. They go to Homestead Air Force Base, Florida, and they're met with a security guard. They are escorted into a hangar facility at Homestead Air Force Base where Jackie Gleason and Richard Nixon are greeted with six vintage coke freezers inside the coke freezers are what you could say small statured childlike alien corpses all dead some somewhat dismembered and burnt they did not look good they look child size jackie gleason look 
looked into these uh, coat freezers and, and he was a changed man. He was never the same. They also had blue bins nearby that had debris. We don't know what crash retrieval this came from, but they, they definitely did have blue uh, bins within the vicinity of where these coat freezers are. So this is kind of a sight picture of what it may have looked like. And so now what we want to do is try to pin this down with any kind of a piece of evidence that we can find to confirm this. So here's our coat freezers. This is very similar to what these things would have looked like with a glass top on, on the uh, top section of the freezer itself. And then here's Jackie Gleason looking inside one of these freezers. Uh, is this story true? Do we have any evidence to back this up? Well, I started digging and I found the newspaper clippings, Fort Lauderdale News, February 1st, 1973. Florida's most star-studded sport event, Super Golf with Superstars, 1973. Jackie Gleason, Inverary National Airlines Classic, the 19th through the 25th. So that checks out. There really was this golf outing. Uh, Jackie Gleason, so there we have the, the blow-up. And then here's Jackie Gleason driving the president at, at the outing. This is Tampa Tribune, February 20th, 1970. So they were there. The dates check out. The location checks out. Uh, let's move forward here. President visits Inverary Golf Course near Fort Lauderdale, Miami Herald, February 20th, 1973. So he was there. Now, the question is, could they have pulled off this covert mission? Could they have done it? Uh, so Jackie Gleason was living in Miami at the time. We have Homestead Air Force Base, which is 28.8 miles away. Total distance is 38 uh, minutes. Now, this is in 2022 timeframe. If we go back to 1973, and if we do this late at night, you could definitely shave off 10 minutes on that. So now we're looking at Instead of 38 minutes, we're looking at 28 minutes. So let's just say it took them 30 minutes to get there. It took them 30 minutes to get back. And we'll say that they were on site for 15 minutes. So the whole thing round trip would have been just over an hour. It's feasible for it to happen. Mm -hmm. If they didn't spend too much time there, it's feasible. They could have actually pulled this thing off in just over an hour. Uh, Dayton Daily News, May 14th, 1993. Jackie Gleason claimed that Richard Nixon took him to Homestead Air Force Base and he viewed alien bodies. That's written about in a book here, and it isn't just Jackie Gleason. And we'll move on here to the next one. Tampa uh, Times Tribune, July 5th, 1987. In her unpublished biography of the funny man entitled The Great One, Beverly Gleason's second spouse describes a bizarre trip Jackie took with then president in 1973 to Homestead Air Force Base in Florida to see what she says were the bodies of four dead space aliens recovered by the Air Force. So we've got some kind of newspaper clipping to back this up. Then we have the Times Tribune, March 15th, 1984. Uh, Larry W. Bryant, who's the organizer and founder of Citizens Against UFO Secrecy, who is the director of the organization, wrote back that there have been reports that McGill Air Force Base, Tampa, Langley Air Force Base in Virginia, and Home Air, Homestead Air Force Base near Miami have all served as way stations or temporary repositories for crash saucer artifacts. So when you put this all together, it's certainly feasible that this actually occurred. Wow. Yep. <clears throat> Yeah, that's one of my favorite stories. I grew up a big Jackie Gleason fan with my family and Honeymooners yep. and all that. And that's one that I've heard before. And I love it. <laughs> I love this story, too. Yeah. I love it, too. Especially because, you know, the conversation story. after they left had to be yeah. the first time Jackie Gleason was probably quiet in his whole life. <laughs> you know what? You're right about that. You're right yep. about that. So it was alleged that when he got back later that night, he plopped himself on the couch and he was a changed man. He was never the same. Yeah. He was never the same after that. I bet. So, yeah, you can see how that would definitely affect you. So let's continue on here. Uh, UFO crash uh, participants. And it was a, it was a novel concept back then. Uh, people really didn't consider it as much as we do now. Now it's commonplace, but back then it was kind of a, a new concept. So when he was done with his lecture, he kind of asked for feedback and if anyone 
had anyone that they knew that had firsthand knowledge of crash retrievals, someone who was in the military, someone that handled the bodies, the autopsies on a retrieval team to please contact him. So he eventually got literally thousands of letters. And what I want to do now is I want to go through a few of these cases here. All of this information can be found in this publication, UFO Crash Retrievals, the Complete Investigation Status Reports, all of them from the first to the end, uh, 1978 to 1994. Now, there are two problems with this report. Number one, it's all text. There's really no you know, pictures to, to speak of. So that's number one. Number two is the agreement Leonard Stringfield had with his witnesses and his sources is he could reveal the story itself by maintaining an important part of our national history, but the witnesses had to remain anonymous. That was the agreement that was made. And so we don't have a way to verify this. That's the problem. We don't have an independent source that we can rely on that can verify this, but we're going to continue anyway. So Here's the information where I got uh, a lot of these cases. This is Lunkin Airport, Cincinnati. This is the location of the original Leonard Stringfield dictation notes that are about 65 three-ring binders. And I want to take you inside the facility. This is boots on the ground research inside the facility. And here you can see the file drawers where these binders are kept. And I've laid out a couple of the binders on the table so you can see they're a little bit smaller in size, but this is where the origin of, of a lot of these cases came from right from these three ring binders. So you're getting the information directly from the original source. Uh, so I want to credit Rudy Gardia, my artist and friend who helped me put this together on paper. And we want to investigate a couple of these uh, UFO crash retrieval stories. Now, first one is Wrightfield, Dayton, Ohio. So right out of the gate, we're before Roswell here. And this has to do with a private who was involved in records management at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And reference for this is Space, The Final Frontier, page 59 by Clark McClellan. Now this records management individual, he knew a security guard at the base and he had to deliver this letter. So he walked up to the hangar, he recognized his friend who was the security guard. And the security guard said, I think I've got something I can show you. So he brought him into the hangar kind of covertly and off to the right hand side, there was an interesting dish-shaped craft, and we're going to forward here, and I want to show you what this thing actually looked like. Here is the drawing based on the eyewitness testimony. It was a 15-foot diameter dish-shaped craft, seven feet tall. It had these very interesting cut-out square windows that were wrapped around the outer circumference of the craft itself. They measured 10 inches wide by about 15 inches long. There was a central column connected to the bottom of the craft that was about three feet in diameter that rose all the way to the top of the craft. Now you could look inside these windows. They weren't opaque, but there was nothing there. <laughs> there was nothing there. Uh, this, thing, this thing had no rivets, no welds, no seams, no hatches, no control panels and no seats. So it was kind of this antiseptically sterile environment on the inside of the craft. This is all back in 1946. Now, now I want to take you inside the hangar. And this is what the color, kind of a color illustration I put together that shows you what the outer skin surface looked like. Kind of had this brushed aluminum polished exterior uh, surface to it. And this is what it basically looked like when they walked into the hangar. Off to the right, there was a uh, tarp that was used to cover it when they're not working. Uh, this is maybe the this was part of a break series or something because there were tools laying next to it. And he also said, and I'm going to back up a couple here. If we, if we go back to, let's see, let's go right here. If you look on this red dot on the bottom view, this was the attempted point of entry with a diamond tip drill bit. And this I keep hearing on all of these retrieval operations. They are desperate to breach the hull of these craft or the windows with a diamond tip drill bit, with an acetylene torch, or with a laser. They're absolutely yeah. desperate to get in these things. So this is the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base 1946 case. 
at the time, uh, well, I, I, I actually know the answer because it didn't exist yet. So there was no um, Air Force Museum at White Patterson when this That's all went down. Right? In so, fact, it was Wright Field, Dayton, Ohio, prior right. to 1947. Mm-hmm. Um, so it also makes you wonder if um, it's, it's a situation where let's build a, a giant airplane museum over top of a large underground storage facility because then that would be an explanation for why there's so much radiation or uh, whatever the case may be that's coming off of these old airplanes and aircraft and things like that that are in this place. So, and it's big. I've been there. It's, yeah. It's, oh, yeah. It's miles. It's huge. Yeah. It's, it's huge. Yeah. Have you, been to, have you been to the UFO display they have at the Air Force Museum? I'm sure I went about 10 years ago. So it's kind of, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I was, I was there uh, five or six years ago. I don't know how, how when it's, when it was there. Okay. I've, so, they, they actually it. do. They actually do have a UFO display, and it's the sorriest thing you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> it is absolutely the sorriest excuse for a display. Well, it's they're probably embarrassing, really. That's the way I felt about the Roswell it. Museum as well. I thought it was kind of sorry. Yeah, it's, right. It's on the upper level. If you if you didn't know it was there, you'd never see it. They don't advertise it, and it's yeah, kind of this probably not. medium glass case. They have a, a burnt pancake in there. They have some pieces of dirt there. Uh, they have a, a glass insulator there. They've got some blurry black and white photos. And, and that is the United States government UFO display. The United States government. Yeah. That's the best they can do. Well, it's, it's terrible. It's so terrible. Yeah, like I said, they're, they're probably poking fun at it. I mean, it's correct. Right. Um, and, you know, what made me, I wanted to go back a couple of, you don't have to go back in your slides, but it's something like the Aztec crash, the Roswell crash. Has anyone, uh, do you know, has anyone ever gone out to these locations with like large, you know, ground penetrating radar or anything to see if there's any stuff left behind? Well, Don Schmidt was involved in a couple of different archaeological digs, and I, I don't think they found the evidence they were looking for. But yes, they, they have tried to do that. They tried to look for the three types of debris. You know, they look for the memory metal. They look for the I-beams. They look for that uh, thin material that could not be cut, could not be burned, could not be dented with a 16-pound sledgehammer. And, you know, where that's what we need. We need that physical yeah. evidence to bring this field forward. We just do. Well, because it makes me think about, you know, how often do you drive through an intersection where there was a, a car crash the previous day? There's still bits and pieces on the ground or been pushed off to the curb or whatever. I mean, the likelihood that the military would have gotten every piece of physical evidence that was left from a crash is, I think, very slim. Yeah. Um, but, the, what, yeah. but whether or not these things would, would show up on a you know metal detector or something like that, I don't know. Yeah. Well, we know for sure that they had two teams of 50 military police types on hands and knees crisscrossing the de- debris field for at least three days. And then what I think is really interesting, they finished up with industrial vacuum cleaners. Now, this is for a weather balloon, we're told, yeah, right? Right, right. So, yeah, that that, adds, that really draws a lot of questions up, really, why they would need to do that if it's just a weather balloon. Right. I mean, it, maybe it's a secret weather balloon. I don't <laughs> so now we can move on to this one. Uh, this is page 32, UFO crash retrievals. That's the source for it. Uh, this came from a construction worker who claimed that he helped the Americans, uh, this is Sierra Madre Valley, California, prior to 1951. I don't have the exact date. It wasn't put in the report, but it was sometime prior to 1951. He was working construction site when this craft came down. They flew in a C-119 flying boxcar, and he helped the Americans load this thing into the back cargo bay of this C-119 uh, flying boxcar. So I went ahead and commissioned my friend Rudy to take us to the scene. And uh, if you look here, you're only looking at about six feet width here. So whatever this craft was had to be small enough to fit inside here. So I'm thinking five foot, six inches max. That's it. We're talking a real small uh, diameter dish shaped craft or it wouldn't fit. So right. that's the, the, the diameter we're looking at here. And here is our retrieval. Uh, he did say that there were bodies associated with this. They must have been extremely small. And yeah. he said that their skin was burnt. It's kind of gruesome, but that's what the report says. When he touched their skin with his hand, 
the skin came off immediately. So kind of gruesome, but that is how it was described in the report. That's how. So theoretically, this could have been Roswell timeframe, somewhere in 47. We know it was prior to 51. So that that checks out with both 47, Roswell, and 48, uh, Aztec. Are are, are any of these, um, not that, I mean, I I don't even know how you would go about finding someone who would have been on one of these recovery teams. But let's say you did. They would be really in their late nineties or early hundreds at this point. Right. So exactly. That's yeah. the problem we're running into. We're already too late. I mean, everybody yeah. from the 509 bomb group, they're all gone. Yeah. So in the mind of the government, it's cover up complete. And even these other cases that Leonard Stringfield has in the status reports, even those are now gone too. There, there might be a few left, but we're so late in the game trying to track these people down. But the, the agreement he made is that, he could not reveal the sources, and so it's a it's a tragedy. It's it's kind of a bittersweet thing. We we've got the story, but we we have no way to verify it. It's unfortunate. Yep, but we're. I don't think we should stop just because no. we have that. Yeah. You know, so we're we're going to no. continue on here. There's just always... because we don't have their name, I think right. we should continue on here. Uh, I think we got time for a couple more here. So, this is the Pentagon, 1952. And this is page 152, case one. And this is interesting. Now, this was a woman who worked at the Pentagon, and she had a a high-level security clearance. She went to an underground basement facility, but somehow, it doesn't say how, but somehow she accidentally bumped into a room that she wasn't supposed to get in there. (laughs) So she, she bumps and accidentally gets into this room. It's kind of dark. It's kind of dingy. It's poorly lit. There's some boxes off to the side. She kind of makes this 90 degree turn and she sees a pickled alien and a glass jar. That's exactly how it was worded. So we went ahead and commissioned uh, my good friend Rudy and this is what uh, he came up with. Within 10 seconds of her getting a very harsh arm, you know, a, a, a hand on her arm, and it was a military guard telling her to get out of there immediately. She had to sign stacks of papers, uh, you know, basically agreeing that she wouldn't talk about this, uh, but she did mention it here at the end. So this is uh, back in 1952 at the Pentagon in an underground vault or uh, some type of chamber basement, but it's it's her word against the government. You know, they, they keep on talking about they don't have any evidence. Well, here we have a fact where this woman claims to have seen such a thing, and she's not the only one. We've got approximately 119 different sources within this compendium report. They can't all be lying. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think the yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? It's the overwhelming amount of uh, firsthand knowledge or uh, or even even secondhand information. Um, that's been brought forth over the last 50 or 60 years yep. really goes on to discredit the government statement that they don't have, have anything. So. Yeah, I mean, it's it's their word against the government. And when you have 119 people, I think we've got some good firepower. Uh, so here's a illustration by Joseph Wraith that this may have been what it looked like uh, in an underground basement somewhere in the Pentagon. It's, it's just a possibility. Uh, we'll move on to the next one here. Wright Patterson Air Force Base, 1953. This has to do with a warrant officer. Page 15, abstract number eight. Now, in this particular case, this warrant officer, he was at the right place at the right time when a four-engine cargo DC-7 landed at the base. It taxied up onto the tarmac, went into the hangar. They shut the hangar door behind it. And then there was a port side cargo door that opened up and there were five wooden crates that were offloaded onto a forklift. The forklift lowers its forks down to the ground. And this warrant officer kind of, he peeked over. He was about 10 feet away from these crates. And he said that there were three crates up on top that had their lids removed. And he looked inside these crates. (laughs) It's incredible. What he ended up seeing were three you could say deceased alien corpses. They were three and a half feet tall. They were basically hairless. They had oversized head, oversized uh, 
uh, eyes, slit for a mouth, minute nose, very minute type ears, uh, virtually hairless. And so we put every put information together from the page 15 abstract number eight. And here is what uh, Rudy came up with. And this is the, it could have been one of these hangars uh, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And let's move forward here. One and two. This is an enlargement of one of the hangars that I took. Here's the DC-7. This is kind of a civilian version. This would have been a, a probably a military cargo version. And this, this is like period correct here. This is a very similar forklift. So this would have been very similar to what this scene would have looked like but inside a hangar instead of being exposed outside. Here's what Rudy came up with. You can see the cargo bay open. You can see the forklift with the crate. And now this warrant officer said two things. Number one, the bodies were suspended on a fabric that kept them above the dry ice below to prevent freezer, freezer burn. Second thing is he said that one of them was female. He, he noticed uh, that one of them was female. So again, this is back in 1953, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and the testimony is from this warrant officer. Wow. Wow. Little they are. <laughs> yep. So they've they've got the bodies, according to this gentleman. They, they've got the bodies. So they've, they've got the craft. They've got the bodies. They've got the debris. They've got the gun camera footage. They've got the 8 by 10 glossy black and whites. Uh, they've got it. Uh, so they can't claim that there's no evidence here. All right, let's move on here. This is 1955. I really like this one. Uh, this has to do with a woman who worked at the Foreign Materials Division at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. This is uh, abstract 12, page 17. And what her job was, and I'm going to move forward here one slide. She worked in a large warehouse at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base where and this is very interesting. She said that a thousand pieces of debris from the interior of multiple UFO crash retrievals were first photographed, bagged, and tagged. And her job was to record these pieces of debris and uh, various different components from the inside of these UFOs. And they were stacked up in this huge warehouse. So you've got this Indiana Jones closing scene yeah. here. And uh, I'm going to take you to a, a period correct. Here's War Operations Warehouse, Building 258 at, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So this it may look very similar to this. So now I want to take you into this facility where they have all these alien components uh, inside the warehouse. Here we are. So now you can see all the debris. You've got the memory metal. You've got some propulsion systems here. Now, she also mentioned that there was a cart that rolled right by her desk and when she looked over she saw two dead alien corpses kind of in these wooden crates as they were rolling by kind of that same three and a half to four feet tall slim uh you could call it casper the ghost squiggly body with long arms long uh legs oversized head oversized eyes so again this is 1955 wright patterson air force base and she mentioned what one very interesting quote this is from this woman here, quote, Uncle Sam can't do anything to me once I'm in my grave. Six <laughs> months later, she died of cancer. Oh, geez. Oh, wow. Yep. So it's her word against the government. Why would this woman die? Why would she reveal it at the very end of her life? You know, what, what, what would she have to gain by lying? I mm. tend to trust these kind of witnesses. Yeah, I mean, it really makes you wonder if, uh, you know, like you said, it's unfortunate that we don't have, uh, the sources for a lot of the uh, uh, reference in, in the book or in the volume, but um, makes you wonder how many of those maybe gave deathbed confessions um, exactly. to their loved ones that, you know, if you had a means to verify or, or contact, yep. you know, their, the survivorship would provide additional detail. So I give her credit to come forward. I think it's bold. I take, oh, yeah. it takes a lot of strength and courage to come forward. And, and she knew she didn't have much time left. So she said, you know what? I'm going for it. Yeah. I'm going to lay it all on the line. She did. I give I her love credit. That. Heck yeah, I do too. I love Heck that. Yeah, <laughs> so do I. Well, and, and, let's, and, let's and keep going here. I was going to say, think about the, think about the, I mean, there's, there's non-disclosure agreements, obviously, but to, to have one that's like basically in perpetuity for the entirety of your life. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, so. Mm -hmm. uh, this is Wright Patterson Air Force Base, April, 1962. 
This was a pilot who was a transient who was in charge of about five other gentlemen. They were pilots too. This is page 88, case A6. Now, these guys were jogging, so they were in shorts, and they were looking for equipment for a mobile racquetball field, essentially. And so what they ended up doing is they ran down this hangar line. They went into this hangar, and when they busted into this hangar, there was a 15-foot diamond or dish-shaped craft that looked like a track and field discus. That's exactly how it was described. Eight feet thick, uh, and there was a roped-off section surrounding the outer circumference of the craft itself. There were approximately five security guards with rifles protecting this thing. The whole thing was propped up on two engine test stands. And one of these MPs said, I don't think you should be here right now. They left. <laughs> uh, later that day, the general in charge of the, of the field talked to this pilot and said, what did you see? And he came back and said, nothing. And this guy said, good answer. <laughs> that's how that went down. Wow. So here's another case where they're they're holding these craft and they've got the uh, debris. We've we, we've heard from the uh, woman who was at 55 at the warehouse. We've heard from her. So again, this is another case where the evidence appears uh, to be right there for us. Now we, I think we've got one more here: Fort Riley, Kansas, December 10th, 1964. This is a private first class, uh, page 24, abstract number 20. He was woken out of a dead sleep, told to uh, board a 6 by military troop transport. When they got to a facility, they walked about a half a mile into this clearing, and there was a dish-shaped craft kind of at a 20-degree angle. And I've done a drawing here to give you an idea what this thing actually looks like. We'll move forward. That's over here. So this was 48 feet in diameter, 18 feet tall. It had a series of square you could call them devices that protruded or jutted out from the outer circumference of the craft, maybe about 10 inches. Mm. There was a fin at the back and then a bulge that popped out from just where this fin terminated on the ridge line of the craft itself. So I want to do a color illustration. This now shows you the back of the craft itself. Now we're going to take you to the scene here. Uh, so what he ended up seeing is, and he was guarding this thing, there was a UH-1 Huey helicopter hovering directly above this because this was at night and they were shining a spotlight directly on the craft itself. Now, there were a couple of what you could say MPs dressed up in hazmat suits and they were checking this craft with what looked like Geiger counters, all kind of like around the outer circumference of the craft. Um, there was a, another one of these troop transports and this guy was just shocked to see this thing and this is at Fort Riley actual date was November 1964. So again, this is another one of these cases where they, they've got the material and it's it's their word against these uh, the government. So yeah. just wanted to provide an illustration for this case. Yeah, and I, and I mean, um, you know, this gentleman, right? Say he's a private first class, 18 or 18, 19 years old in 1964. Uh, he's probably still around kicking. Uh, and so uh, yeah, again, you know, if cross-checking records or something maybe we can find him but yeah it's just um uh, i think it would just add you know like more validity if you will to or not validity but reinforcing the accuracy of the statement uh, not that i've not that i feel like they were lying in any well, way especially but, now um, that so many more people are coming forward in the right. military that if some of these older uh crash retrieval folks and things like that that were military or, or civilian right. come forward now's a good time so if yeah. you're still alive yeah <laughs> so if you're if you're watching this and you were there well, let us know <laughs> <laughs> exactly um well michael that's getting up to our time uh we wanted to uh first of all thank you so much for sharing all this great yeah. information uh and a reminder to podcast listeners uh if you guys want to see uh the pictures and things that uh michael was showing uh make sure to check out our youtube uh version of this uh at youtube.com slash fearscape media that way you can see uh everything that we posted there uh but mike i wanted to give you a chance to share anything that's out there you got going on or some things you want some folks to know about we always want to make sure that you have a chance to do that sure thanks a lot so what my crusade is is i'm going to continue drilling down on these uh, leonard springfield cases making them come alive through the use of drawings i really want to preserve an important part of our national history and you can follow all the current events on my youtube channel called blue room media appreciate that 
Um, and, and again, I want to echo, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, it's been a fantastic conversation and um, I've learned uh, so much more than I, than I knew before. So glad to be with you guys. Yep. Thank you. Uh, so thank you guys so much for tuning in. That's our show today. Uh, again, Michael Schratt, we thank you. Um, thank you guys so much for tuning in to the Convergence Enigma with Josh and Stefan. Uh, this has been Stefan. And uh, just a reminder, keep your eyes on the skies, folks. This has been Josh. The truth is now. And remember, folks, keep questioning and keep searching. Good night, everybody. Good night.